0: Think back to middle school. You're in biology class and the smell of formaldehyde wafts in the air. You've just spent weeks learning about the vital organs from textbooks and lectures, but now a little green frog is splayed lifeless before you. You're about to participate in that familiar rite of passage, the dissection. The exercise may feel kind of archaic, but how do you really know something exists without seeing it for yourself? To truly understand something, after all, sometimes you just need to open it up, analyze it down to its distinct parts, tease apart the things that matter from the things that don't, see with your own eyes just how interconnected everything is. Dissection is about learning, about getting inside of something to understand it better. And with all we hear about health these days, whether in the news or on social media or from wellness gurus on TV, it's easy to miss the parts that matter. So it's time for some dissection. Let's start at the beginning. It's London, 1853. The city's just been transformed by the Industrial Revolution. Life is changing fast. It's summer in the city, unusually hot. It's crowded. People are doing everything they can to escape their tiny tenements. And there's something else, death in the air. There's been an outbreak of cholera The epidemic is spreading fast. In the past week alone, in one neighborhood, 83 people were declared dead. Enter Jon Snow. Yeah, not that Jon Snow. We're talking about the OG doctor Jon Snow. He wasn't king in the north, but he did take care of the queen when she gave birth. And nobody knows it yet, but he's about to become king of public health. But back to this epidemic. The big question on everyone's mind is how it's spreading, because then maybe someone could do something about it. There are two competing camps. Camp one, Team Miasma. Basically, supporters of this Miasma theory think that a low-lying cloud of foul gases emanating from the soil is somehow killing people when they breathe it in. That may sound absurd, but it's actually the going theory at the moment. Camp number two, Jon Snow's camp, Team Contagion. They think there's some substance transmitting this disease. A bunch of tiny particles, maybe. Probably in the water people are drinking. So, Jon Snow, he focuses in on the water. He seizes this moment. Remember those 83 people who died in that one neighborhood? He starts talking to their next of kin, maps where they lived. And he finds something big. 73 of those 83 just so happened to all live right next to the same shared public water pump. The faded Broad Street pump which also happens to be downstream from where people have been dumping their cesspits. That's nasty. And also a perfect recipe for a public health disaster. Jon Snow's evidence helps set the stage for one of history's most important discoveries, the germ theory of disease. That microscopic organisms, tiny particles or germs, cause diseases in humans. But that's not why I'm telling you this story. No, what Jon Snow does next is... See... He doesn't just go publish his neat little map in a journal and call it a day. No, Jon Snow takes his evidence to the Board of Guardians. That's seriously what they called the town council back then. And convinces them to take action. Remove the handle from the pump. And they do. No more handle, no more water. And down goes cholera. Simple, but epic. He used science to move government, to act, to save people's lives. And that, my friends, is how public health was born. Soon after snow, early health departments began popping up all over Europe and the US, mandating sanitation and hygienic water treatment, reducing overcrowding, passing and enforcing food and worker safety laws, and it worked. People got way healthier, pretty quickly. And as science yielded new discoveries, like vaccines or antibiotics, government was right there to put them into action. That dynamic duo, science and government, Working together, trusting each other, it's brought us some of the greatest health achievements in human history. At the turn of the 20th century, life expectancy in the U.S. was 47. By 1950, it jumped more than 20 years. Science and government, two things Americans love to hate. And our trust in both, it's flagging. Welcome to America Dissected podcast about health and the critical relationship between science and government that's made it possible. My name is Abdul Al sayed I'm trained as a doctor and an epidemiologist, someone who studies patterns of disease. I've dedicated my life to health, not of any one person, but of all of our health, this thing we call public health. As Detroit's health commissioner, I was on the front lines of protecting our health, and I had a front row seat as this crucial partnership that Jon Snow helped usher in between science and government, started to falter. I watched media spin get in the way of sound science. Autism wasn't prevalent like it is now. Something's happening, we can't really ignore that. I choose to believe that I think it's in the vaccines. And petty politics get in the way of sound government. This morning, Obamacare back in the crosshairs. It's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that healthcare could be so complicated. And I watched as people suffered the consequences. Here on America Dissected, I'm bringing you stories from those front lines. Together, we'll cut through the BS to get back to what matters in our health. Understanding how lucky we are to be alive today, the threats we face, and what we have to do to address them. In this first episode, we're cutting right into the belly of the beast. Anti-vaxxers.
1: Missing her vaccination dates.
2: We're not vaccinating.
0: Think they don't work?
2: I think some multinational pharmaceutical company wants me to think they work
0: by now you've heard about the rise in measles and whooping cough across this country, diseases that had nearly been eradicated in the US. These outbreaks, they're popping up in unexpected places like Portland, Los Angeles, New York City. And you've no doubt noticed the huge amounts of attention being paid to the small minority of people, celebrity or otherwise, spewing nonsense about vaccines. And that's the issue. That attention, it's exacerbating the problem. And they're not the ones who deserve our attention anyway. The people who really deserve our attention in all this, they have a very different story to tell.
3: I'm 27 weeks today.
0: Are you Are you going to f- find out the sex or are you going to no, wait? No, no, no.
3: I'm too uh, ahead of the game for that. We're having another girl.
0: This is Dana Lawson. She lives outside of Boston where she works in fundraising for a big animal hospital. One day, she received a very unexpected message.
3: I got an email that Saturday of Memorial Day weekend, along with a whole bunch of social media posts, that there had been a measles exposure. The email was directly from the YMCA um, and also got emails from a couple other locations in my city that said if you were in any of these spots during these periods of time, you may have been exposed to measles because there was a baby with measles in these areas.
0: What happened to Dana could have happened to anybody, She's pregnant, and her four-year-old daughter goes to a preschool at their local YMCA in Massachusetts. And during pickup time, a parent had brought a baby who had been carrying measles. Contamination was in a very specific area, through the lobby, at a certain door. And Dana had been right there. Thankfully, her four-year-old daughter had been vaccinated. But Dana worried about her unborn child, so she decided to take some extra precautions.
3: About a week later... I went into my doctor and had a blood draw for the measles antibodies. And it came back that I had the antibodies for rubella, but not for measles. Mm -hmm. And even though I had received the vaccine when I was a kid, it was the 80s. So I found out that I only got one shot instead of two. And the second booster would probably put me over the edge and made me immune to measles. But at that point, I was considered not immune to measles. Since 1989, children get two shots for
0: measles, at least one month apart. And that renders 97% of people immune. But Dana had her shots earlier in the 80s, during a time where that second shot wasn't recommended. This one shot gave Dana a 93% chance of immunity, meaning that there was still a sizable risk she could get sick. And now, because of her pregnancy, she couldn't get a booster shot, that extra dose she never got when she was a kid because she was vaccinated before the change in vaccine recommendations.
3: Actually, my doctor right away said, I think this is okay. Then she called me back about... I don't know, 10 minutes later and said, I'm so sorry, I spoke to the Department of Public Health and the state epidemiologist to report this and you're actually have to go on quarantine for 21 days in your home.
0: 21 days, that's a really long time to be cooped up in your house, but here's why. The thing about measles is that it starts to be contagious even before the symptoms start, but it can take 21 days for those symptoms to start. That means that 21 days is the longest possible period between when someone could be giving people the disease and when they would know they had it. That period is the most dangerous time for spreading the
3: disease. And quarantine makes sure that they're not spreading it all that time. I was coming actually, sadly, from a funeral that I would just been at. And the first thing I thought of was, what's going on? Oh my God, did I just give all these people at this funeral the measles? I never had a fever or a rash or anything, but I had been in my office. So I had to call my human resources department on a Friday afternoon and... um they had to call the city of Boston and they had to go through lots of hoops to make sure that the rest of our staff, which is about five to six hundred people,
0: were OK. Did you fear that something might happen with the pregnancy if you were to come down with the fever and the rash?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the pregnancy was number one on my mind. It was actually me getting the measles was the least of my worries Um, in, in the sense of if I knew that if I were to get sick. I'd be in a full panic about measles in the womb or what's going to happen. It was very scary because I I lived in fear of getting this fever. And, you know, you don't even want to get like a sniffle when you're pregnant. You don't want to get anything because you know you're carrying another being inside your body. A pregnant
0: woman forced to spend 21 days under quarantine, worried sick the whole time about what might happen if her unborn child were to contract one of the most contagious diseases known to humankind. And then there was the outright bizarre repercussions, like when her daughter got strep in the middle of her quarantine and Dana wasn't allowed inside the doctor's office.
3: They said, well, just park in the parking lot and we'll come down to you. Um, So we were in the parking lot, my daughter and I, she's coloring and these two nurses come down in full hazmat suits with their strep culture (laughs) and they come in and they're like, my daughter's terrified. And everyone, I don't know how this didn't end up on the internet because everyone had their phones out and they're like taking pictures. They're also like, what is this service? This car side service that you're getting. But, um, they did her throat swab. (laughs) Car
0: side (laughs) hazmat service. Yeah. They're
3: like, what's going on? And I was like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. Um, you know, and it's hard enough to just get a throat culture on a kid anyways.
0: Yeah. So what Dana's story reminds us is that while those nurses in hazmat suits were trying to protect themselves in a hazmat bubble, the point is, none of us live in one. What we do or don't do affects the people we share this place with, sometimes with frightening consequences. And this is why Dana's story is the story we should be hearing. What did she do wrong? Nothing. She was the unlucky consequence of someone else's misinformed decisions. Dana and her unborn child would have been protected if everyone else had been too. But you may be asking yourself, how exactly? And also, seriously, what is going on with this breakdown in people's trust of vaccinations? Fear not, we're gonna get into it. But first, let's talk about the science behind vaccinations. A lot of you might already know this, but bear with me on the problematic policing metaphor. Our bodies have this incredible immune system. Think about it like a distributed police force that exists all over the body. Specialized cells doing specialized things, all with one goal, keeping you healthy. Let's call it the immune force. I was taught in med school that if you were to take the whole immune force dispersed all over the body and put it in one place, it'd be an organ the size of your brain. Immune cells, they're really good at attacking things that they've seen before. Once they recognize a bad guy, they target and destroy it quickly, matter of hours. It's like targeting a repeat offender, somebody who's already in the system. But they're not as good at identifying a first-timer, and so the whole process can take a week or more. But a week is a long time. You can imagine that a really deadly disease can wreak havoc before the immune system even has a chance to get started. And that's where vaccines come in. They introduce our body's immune system to a weakened, or sometimes dead, version of that offending agent. It's like a massive wanted poster, or a be on the lookout call over the wires. So when our immune system cells do catch sight of the real thing if you're ever exposed, They know just what to do. In the last century, vaccines have been incredibly effective at reducing and sometimes completely eradicating disease. Notice how you don't hear about anyone getting smallpox anymore? Yeah, vaccines. In fact, vaccines are right up there alongside the ranks of Jon Snow in our public health history book, a tool in our kick-ass arsenal ensuring we all live longer lives than our predecessors. What's crazy is that they haven't been around that long. Our modern sense of mass-produced vaccinations that have the power to eradicate disease is barely two generations old. The vaccine for Pertussis was created in 1914, diphtheria, 1926, and tetanus in 1938. Polio? Not until 1952. Now, I was born in 1984. The only vaccine-preventable illness I got was the chicken pox. That's because they didn't have a vaccine for it yet. But with measles on the rise, I was curious. What was it like to live in a time before vaccines, when diseases they prevent were just common? So I called some folks who could fill me in. Grandma, I, um, I distinctly remember going to the doctor to get vaccinated. With... Oh,
2: you were oh, terrible. It was awful. Oh. <laughs> you haven't guessed it
0: already? That's, right. That's my grandma Judy and my grandpa Jan. They're exposing all my secrets. Grandma's a nurse who worked in the health system for decades. She and my grandpa are retired now. They're in their 70s which means they were born in the 1940s, before the advent of the polio vaccine.
2: I remember we would go to somebody's house when they'd found out they were having polio. It was like going to a house uh, like a funeral. I mean, it it was, uh, I remember as a little child just being uncomfortable, but I had, oh, there were two little girls that died. And I can just physically remember four or five people that got polio. Janet Daltz, uh, they just lived close to us. And uh, Jeff Arnold that was from town. Everybody was afraid of it. I lived in Ann Arbor, and I didn't know any children that got it. But you heard about it all the time, and everybody was really scared of it because, you know, they end up in iron lungs and... Some of them died, and some of them were in wheelchairs the rest of their lives.
0: Polio is scary, paralyzing, even killing people, often kids. But by 1955, the famous Salk vaccine had been released to the public. Then the historic announcement. The
3: vaccine works. It is safe, effective, and potent. The tests proved it up to
2: 90% effective in preventing paralytic polio.
0: Someday... Following its release, there was a massive campaign to get everyone vaccinated. And it worked! Polio was a thing of the past in the U.S. And it was the same story with so many other vaccines. But now? How much do you think vaccines have become a victim of their own success? Oh, there's no
2: question. I mean, you don't have the diseases, so why do you need the vaccine? Well, I remember when they were going to stop giving the smallpox vaccine. Yeah. That was our first success, I think. But I, I don't even know how much smallpox there is in the world now.
0: They've eradicated it 40 years ago.
2: So really what we should be doing is trying to get the whole world vaccinated for a while and then eradicate the disease.
0: Grandma's right. The ideal would be to get everybody vaccinated and therefore eradicate these diseases. And the frustrating thing is, we were so close with measles, at least in this country. Of course, the truth is, not everyone can get vaccinated. And there lies one of the most important functions of vaccines— They don't just protect people who get them, they protect the very people who can't. Pregnant people, like Dana, people whose immune systems are still developing, like babies, or folks with immune disorders. That protection happens because of a process called herd immunity, or collective immunity. Think of it this way. If you're one of those people who can't get vaccinated, your probability of getting one of those vaccine-preventable infectious diseases depends on your probability of coming in contact with somebody who has the disease. And those with the disease could only have gotten it if they weren't vaccinated in the first place. It follows then that if more people get vaccinated, those who can't for some medical reason are less likely to come into contact with somebody who could give them the disease in the first place. And then there's just less disease. But when fewer and fewer people choose to vaccinate, more people carry the disease, and the likelihood that people who can't get vaccinated come in contact with them and get the disease, it goes up. Choosing not to vaccinate is more like drinking and driving than it is like choosing not to wear a seatbelt. You don't wear a seatbelt, you're making an awful decision, but you're only jeopardizing yourself. But if you drink and drive, your recklessness can kill other people. In short, you vaccinate to protect yourself and to protect everyone around you. As more and more people are choosing not to vaccinate, our collective immunity is breaking down. That's leading to these outbreaks. That's incredibly frustrating when you have an incredibly safe affordable, effective vaccine for a disease that we almost eradicated in the early 2000s. So, with this rock-solid vaccine backed by rock-solid science, why are people not vaccinating their kids? For that, stick around. This is America Dissected, and today, we're talking about anti-vaxxers.
3: We have now an outbreak of a measles. The number of measles cases in the U.S. is surging in what has become the worst outbreak in 25 years.
0: Measles cases in the U.S. have surpassed the highest number on record. The media's paid a ton of attention to this small group of people who refuse to vaccinate their children. There's even a new PC term that sprung up to describe this phenomenon. Vaccine hesitancy. Can we all agree to throw that into the growing column of unhelpful euphemisms that convey legitimacy on things that don't need any more of it? With the help of a hapless media and exploitative politicians, these anti-vax groups have had great success in growing the number of the so-called hesitant. And as we talked about, that's had some very real consequences for public health. The first seven months of 2019 had more than three times as many measles cases as all of 2018. In many ways, the success we had in almost eradicating measles through the vaccine has kind of backfired. While there are mandatory vaccination laws on the books in all 50 states, there are, of course, also loopholes in almost every one. In fact, because of ceaseless misinformation campaigns and BS arguments about government overreach, anti-vax dogma has almost become mainstream in Republican thinking, and is starting to creep in on the left, too. Those loopholes are called exemptions. Like for a war draft, An exemption is a waiver that allows you to do something different from what the government is telling you to do. So vaccine exemptions are waivers for parents that allow them to send their kids to school even though they haven't been vaccinated. Those waivers were originally created for kids who had medical reasons why they can't be vaccinated. But because of the way misinformation is mixed with politics, today, 15 states allow for a philosophical exemption, meaning you don't have to justify your anti-vaxxer beliefs to anyone. You just get to choose not to vaccinate your kids. My home state, Michigan, Is one of those states. If you're a parent who wants an exemption, all you have to do is go to a local health department and talk it over with one of the staff. Then you're good to go. These waivers are leading to the breakdown in the collective immunity that we talked about earlier, leading to the outbreaks you've been hearing so much about. But honestly, I think we're talking about the wrong outbreak. Not measles, but rather the contagion of misinformation that is making the spread of measles even possible. To learn more about the spreading mindset, we turn to a young man who grew up in an environment teeming with it. Growing up, it was a very hostile environment towards vaccines. That's Ethan Lindenberger. He grew up unvaccinated in the state of Ohio, another state with a philosophical exemption on the books. Today, Ethan, who's 18 years old, is a rising voice in the anti-anti-vaccine movement. My mom would talk openly about how vaccines were dangerous, how they were unhealthy
1: how they cause autism and brain damage and didn't help anybody's health and safety, you didn't contribute to the health and safety society. But I didn't really think about it too much because it wasn't this big deal that was important to me. We were just the healthy kids who weren't vaccinated. As a 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old kid, you don't know anything about health and science and medicine. Like, you you don't ever speak to the doctor when you go in for an appointment. Your your parents make the all decisions for you, and so... My perspective growing up was, like, I just was avoiding these needles that would probably hurt, and that's kind of convenient for my 13-year-old self going to public school. Ethan's mom didn't form her anti-vaccine stance independently.
0: I mean, where did she get this research?
1: It was partially a lack of education and also a surplus of misinformation. So she originally started from, like, you know, misinformed books or articles or probably also friends and family members who would, like, give these second-hand accounts of people getting vaccinated and being injured or some such you know, story that wasn't accurate, you know, as that progressed, she latched onto social media. And so even if she was just partially hesitant, she, I know for sure that once social media kind of came into the picture that she was surrounded by all these other people that shared her, these opinions and encouraged them. And so I think social media is where it turned into like this passion rather than a curiosity.
0: So she found like a, an online community that really justified and validated her thoughts. And then that sort of reinforced her position outside of the internet.
1: Yeah, that social space online became a big focal point for her to share those opinions, get more information, and feel encouraged for
0: this ignorance that was kind of growing. The internet is, unsurprisingly, a cesspool of anti-vax propaganda, where people turn to learn all sorts of lies. The idea that vaccines are dangerous for their kids, the dangerous lie that they cause autism, Or that there's a conspiracy facilitated by the CDC, the WHO, and podcast hosts like me. But it's also a two-way street. And as Ethan turned 16, he started to see anti-anti-vaxxer content through memes and on discussion boards. He realized that what he was hearing at the dinner table wasn't just wrong. It was dangerous.
1: I'd see a meme about vaccines and I'd see an article shared about it. You know, There'd be something on Facebook or Reddit. I think that was like the first time where I was like, here's some other information. And we compared notes. And my mom was having like this big conversation about vaccines and saying that her friend was pro-vaccine, how dumb that was. And she's like, of course, like they cause autism and she doesn't even know. And I just like got on my phone and I got the CDC website up and I looked on the CDC's website, you know, vaccines and autism. And there was an article in the very large headline was vaccines do not cause autism. And I showed it to her and I said like, well, you know, the CDC disagrees. Like, is there any, do you have any reason why they'd be wrong.
0: And she was just like, well, that's what they want you to think. Ethan's research eventually led him to reject his mom's beliefs. At first, that was no big deal. A disagreement between a parent and a kid. Something as old as time. But as colleges began to ask him for vaccination records, he was forced to ask himself if it was finally time that he got vaccinated. So when he turned 18, Ethan made his decision. What was her response when you said, I'm going to get vaccinated?
1: Oh, absolute, absolute fear. I mean, she freaked out because uh, you gotta think like it makes sense if you really do believe this stuff and if somehow you've fallen into this trap and your child comes up to you and says i'm gonna get my vaccines well how do you how else would you respond other than losing your mind you know mm. like if my if my kid came to me and said like i'm gonna take a bath in radioactive like waste i'd be like uh no absolutely not what was your response to her fear Just um, understanding, I guess, I understood going in that this was going to be a situation where she would not respond well. Instead of just going and getting my vaccines one day and then coming home with a bandaid on my arm and saying like, too late, um, I made an appointment with a doctor and spoke to her. And so I made every decision I could to like lay out a foundation of respect and trust.
0: Your response captures a level of empathy and respect, even in the face of deeply irrational behavior. Right, you appreciated the space of mind that your mother occupies and you assented to it, right? You said, you know, this is where she is emotionally and I'm going to have to calibrate my response in tow. What does that say about the way we should be approaching anti-vaxxers generally?
1: You can't control other people's responses. You can't control the way people think. So you have to best handle the way you think and the way you behave. When it comes to like individuals, your family, your friends, people that have suffered and are victims of misinformation, I think that approaching them with the same mindset of like empathy, kindness, respect, that's so important and we're missing that because we're falsely identifying the problem with them rather than the people that are leading the movement, that are spreading the lies.
0: And the way you've laid it out is that there are perpetrators and then there are victims of this virus of misinformation and that we ought to be treating them differently, right? People who are anti-vaccine aren't bad people. They're not
1: evil people. They're, they're not dangerous. I think they're people that have seen bad information, have been reached with poor information, that, that is telling them that they are, a, they are a bad mom, they're a bad dad, they're a bad father. They are a horrible parent that is putting their kids in danger if they vaccinate, which is exactly the
0: opposite of what's true. Ethan's right. You and I have good reason to fear anti-vaxxers, but at their core, anti-vaxxers are scared too. Like Ethan was getting at, in the context of the contagion of misinformation, anti-vaxxers are just the victims who've been infected. And like any virus, we can't just treat the symptoms. We've got to go after the source. The anti-vax movement didn't just sprout up on its own. It was manufactured.
1: There are people that are actively taking roles as anti-vaccine leaders who who understand the 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 gravity of the situation, that understand the real truth behind the situation,
0: and they are vocally taking
1: stances that are amassing them such large communities.
0: Why do you think some of these uh, these leaders of the anti-vax movement do it? What do they gain out of it? Oh, they gain so much money. It's ridiculous.
1: Uh, there's money. There's fame. There's uh, being part of a movement. There's so much to it. You get you gain so much by becoming a vocal leader in the anti-vaccine community. I mean, you're talking about how you can sell supplements, you can sell uh, alternative medicine. You look on a, half the anti-vaccine websites that are like the largest sources of misinformation, they're slewed with ads. They're covered with advertisements and they're selling. Th- they're also marketing their own information.
0: How should we be dealing with these perpetrators, right? When when Justin Timberlake uh, or Jessica Biel come out and say, I'm worried about this. And, and they now become pushers of this very dangerous uh, mindset. How should we be dealing with them?
1: It's such a hard problem to address because there's so many ways you could approach it, and there's so many consequences with the way you you approach the situation. I think it's a level of not reaching those people, but reaching the people that are still recruitable to reality, right? People that are still on the fence, I don't think my mom will ever change her opinion. I don't think that there's anything you can do, any information you can present her. You could sit her down in front of someone dying from measles and show them, show her the vaccine, give it to a different kid, move them in that room, and that kid's fine, and she would still say no.
0: So we've, we've got to be thinking almost about making sure that the right information is given to folks who are susceptible. And so it's almost like we're vaccinating against anti-vaxness.
1: Young people are, are a, a fantastic demographic to reach a better information. Having... uh. Schools have better education towards vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. These are solutions that work that we need to focus on because you're reaching people that are more susceptible rather than have, you know, fallen to this like, like, just this pit of, of lies that they'll never climb out of.
0: So we treat this anti vax contagion two ways we fight the perpetrators at the source, and we try to give people the information they need before they ever hear the anti vaxxer propaganda. But when it comes to vaccines, the people who most of us trust to tell us what's good for us and our kids, our doctors, may need to rethink how they do it. So doctors
1: honestly should be trained to be better storytellers. We didn't express the danger of polio in medical terms. It was, why do, like, people would sit around at dinner tables and say, well, why do we vaccinate against polio? And, you know, the mom or dad in the house would say, the reason we vaccinate is because little Timmy down the street didn't, and he's dead now, right? So that's like, that's those are the stories that convince people to vaccinate
0: What do you think we need to do with respect to public policy on this issue? Do you believe that religious or philosophical exemptions are justified? You're talking about the government setting up a public
1: environment in in a school system where they're allowing people to be put at risk for diseases they can prevent. And that doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense that we have the ability to put kids at risk and the government facilitates that environment.
0: And and yet that would mean that you and your siblings would have been barred from public school.
1: Absolutely. That's the point. When you talk about schools, like states that take away these exemptions, the inoculation rate goes up to almost 90 percent, 95 percent. It works because for my mom, she would not be able to fund and properly put the time and effort into private school or homeschool. Mm. She'd be left with one option, which is to vaccinate her children and put them in public school it shouldn't be permissible for the government to put people in riskful circumstances and, and dangerous circumstances. That's not permissible. It's not the government's duty. And so the government's almost making this this ignorance a encouraged, you know, and accepted idea.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Good luck.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thanks, man.
0: So Ethan's given us a lot to think about. First of all, this whole, why the F don't people vaccinate their kids approach? It's not working. Like Ethan said, we have to differentiate between the perpetrators and the victims. While the perpetrators may be driving this anti-vaxxer ideology for personal gain, their victims are usually just afraid. One of the things I learned in med school, and then again as a politician, is that yelling at people who are scared doesn't make them less scared, especially if you're speaking on behalf of one of those institutions they don't trust in the first place. Second, we haven't done a good job of communicating with language that people understand. People don't just change their minds by hearing statistics or the results of some empirical study. No, for most of human history, the most effective means of communication has been telling stories. And then, we really need to rethink our policy. Like Ethan said, our governments can't continue to put children at risk, which is what happens when we allow collective immunity to break down. And the good news many states are reconsidering unnecessary exemptions.
2: There's a new push underway to toughen California's immunization law. A state lawmaker has introduced a bill that would ban anti-vaxxers from doctor shopping for medical exemptions. There
0: will be no more religious exemptions for vaccines in New York State. But anti-vax perpetrators are digging in, getting louder and more hostile. That's why, if we want to win the battle against measles and the contagious mindset that's spreading it, we've got to empower the voices and stories we don't usually hear from courageous people like Dana and Ethan. (laughs) This episode, we talked about what happens when people ignore clear scientific information in a matter of life or death. Next episode, we explore the space where science really hasn't given us answers and the people who exploit it. Goop has debuted a
3: coffee enema.
0: That's right. We're talking about green juices, crystals, and skincare. The cult of wellness, where scammers thrive and misinformation continues to spread. Next episode on America Dissected. As an epidemiologist, I know a thing or two about virality. So if you like our show, make sure to share, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes. And tweet or Instagram me at, at Abdul El-Sayed, and I'll throw you a repost. America Dissected is a production of Crooked Media. Our producers are Austin Fisher, Carrie Jr. II, and Katie Long. Andrea B. Scott is our story editor. Our sound designer is Daniel Ramirez. Production support from Allison Falzetta, Elisa Gutierrez, Kara Hart, Daniel Porciarelli, and Tara Terpstra. Fact-checking by Dr. Nicole Aiello. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and Mukta Mohan. Special thanks to John Favreau, John Lovett, Tanya Sominader, and Tommy Vitor. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening.